You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and the Theory of Art, Foundations of a New Aesthetics. There are four essays written between 1890 and 1898, and eight lectures held between 1909 and 1921. The translation is by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Venno. From a Notebook, 1888. All thinking seeks spirit in nature. For science, the world of reality is something transitory, a crossing point through which it must pass to reach the essence of things. This essence can only be grasped as idea. That which holds the world together at its innermost core will be revealed only when the human spirit transcends this reality by destroying the husk and penetrating to the seed. We will never again be satisfied by the individual natural event, but only by the law, not by the individual, but only by the universal. Inwardly, the human being creates a world that relates to his spiritual needs that harmonizes with what his spirit demands, that resides within the strict logic for which he strives. Outer nature, as it appears to us directly, will never be able to fulfill this for us. Only the penetrating gaze of the sun-like eye, E-Y-E, sees the spiritual sun that lives and reigns behind the appearances of things. The direct appearance seems robbed of divinity. That is why ages with a predominantly theological tendency could never establish an aesthetic science. Aesthetics can only be the offspring of an age in which the cultivation of art is seen as a noble task in which art becomes the noble daughter of heaven, who must fulfill a divine mission. If we perceive the divine in its full intensity, reigning in every single phenomenon of nature, what then can the task of art be? The divine in its most sublime form would have to be recognized as an idea so that the appearance of the particular could also be given its rightful place in the system of our world view. An intuitive spirit sees in the detail the general, in the individual thing the idea, but only because while looking at what is real he sees more in this reality than what the mere senses can see. 
He looks at the particular phenomenon and grasps the idea because he does not get stuck at the individual event. The artist transforms the individual element, bestowing on it a universal character. He changes it from something that is merely happenstance into a necessity, from something earthly into something divine. The task of the artist is not to give the idea a physical appearance, but rather to allow reality to appear in its ideal light. Significant is not the what, which is derived from reality, but the how, which is the province of the creative power of genius. When the individual element appears severed from the fabric of the world and thus able to develop its own free ideal nature, it appears to us to be essentially different than in reality. And although it appears to us in its truth, this truth is illusion from the perspective of the laws of nature. In drama, natural necessity becomes a matter of ethics because human activity must be deemed historical, not ethical. Beauty is not a microcosm and if it were, it would not be beautiful. For it is precisely when the individual element surpasses its own characteristics and greatness that beauty arises. We experience this as a perfection which cannot lift us beyond the world because it is simply self-evident there. End of notebook entry. Next essay entry. Goethe as father of a new aesthetics. Vienna, November 9, 1888 Author's Summary Introduction to the Second Edition This lecture, which here appears in its second edition, was held more than twenty years ago at the Goethe Society of Vienna. The following words are occasioned by this new edition. It has been found that during my time as a writer my views have changed. Where is the law stating that something I wrote twenty years ago must appear today without the need to change a single sentence? And if, especially in my spiritual, scientific, anthroposophical activity, someone were to note a change in my ideas, I would respond that in reviewing this lecture I find the ideas developed in it to be a healthy foundation for anthroposophy. Indeed, I even find that what is essential for a clear grasp of my ideas is specifically the anthroposophical way of thinking. A different way of thinking will hamper a conscious realization of the most important ideas. I have developed what stood behind my worldview twenty years ago in various directions. That is the significant matter at hand, not a change in my worldview. A few remarks which will be added for clarity as an appendage could just as well have been written twenty years ago. 
The question could now be raised as to whether the content of the lecture is still relevant today with regard to aesthetics. For in the last two decades, various contributions have been made in this field. I do believe that it is even more relevant than it was twenty years ago. In relation to the development of aesthetics, the following grotesque sentence may be risked. The thoughts in this lecture have become even more true than when they first appeared, even though they have not changed at all. Rudolf Steiner, Basel, September 15, 1909 An overwhelming number of papers and essays have appeared in our time with the object of determining Goethe's relationship to the various branches of modern science and contemporary spiritual life. A mere listing of titles would likely amount to an impressive volume. This phenomenon stems from our increasing awareness of the fact that in Goethe we encounter a cultural factor with which we must reckon if we wish to participate in contemporary spiritual life. Ignoring this fact would, in this case, mean a rejection of the foundations of our culture, a stumbling about in the depths, without the will to raise ourselves up to the radiant height from which all the light of our education emanates. Only one who is able to connect at some point with Goethe and his time can achieve clarity about the path our civilization takes, can become conscious of the goals that contemporary humanity must set. Whoever does not find this relationship to the greatest spirit of our age is simply pulled along blindly by contemporaries. All things will appear in a new light if we observe them from the perspective that has been refined by this cultural source. As heartening as we may find the aforementioned striving of contemporaries to connect somehow with Goethe, it cannot be said that the manner in which this happens is favorable. All too often we find a lack of the impartiality that is necessary for a full immersion into Goethe's genius before settling into a stance of criticism. Goethe is considered outdated in many areas, only because his full significance is not recognized. We think we have far surpassed Goethe. But on the whole it would be more appropriate to apply his comprehensive principles, his magnificent way of seeing things, to our current, more comprehensive scientific resources and facts. With Goethe it is never a question of whether the results of his research are more or less in agreement with contemporary science, but of how he approached things. His results bear the stamp of his time. That is, they go as far as the scientific methods and experience of his time could reach. But his way of thinking, of formulating the problems... This is a lasting achievement to which we do the greatest disservice by treating it with condescension. And yet it is characteristic of our own age that the productive spiritual power of the genius seems almost meaningless. What else could be expected in an age that scorns 
any transcendence of physical experience, whether in the sciences or the arts. Mere sensory observation requires nothing more than healthy senses, and therefore genius is completely unnecessary. But true progress in both the sciences and the arts is never achieved through observation of this kind or the slavish imitation of nature. Thousands upon thousands pay no heed to an observation until one person discovers through the same observation an amazing scientific law. No doubt many people observed a swinging church lamp before Galileo, but this genius had to come along and discover the laws of pendular motion that are of such significance for physics. Quote, were the eye, E-Y-E, not sun-like, how could we glimpse the light? Close quote, exclaims Goethe. By this he means that only those who can see into the depths of nature have the necessary disposition and the productive strength to see in what exists more than mere outer facts. But we fail to recognize this. We should not confuse the enormous achievements we owe to Goethe's genius with the shortcomings inherent in his research as a consequence of the limited scope of experience in his day. Goethe himself characterized the relationship between his scientific results and the progress of science in a fitting image. He designated these results as pieces of a board game with which he may have dared to go too far on the board but from which the plan of the player ought to be recognized. If we take these words to heart, then in the realm of Goethe research the following lofty task arises. The research must always be traced back to Goethe's own tendencies. Whatever he himself provides as result may be taken as a mere example of how he sought to solve his great tasks with limited means. We must attempt to solve them in his spirit, but with greater means at our disposal and on the basis of our richer experiences. In this way it will be possible to fructify all branches of research that interested Goethe. Moreover, these branches of research will all bear a unified character, will all be aspects of a great and unified worldview. Purely philological and critical research, which would be foolish to dismiss, must find its continuation in this way. We must master the wealth of thoughts and ideas that exist in Goethe, and taking them as our starting point, we must develop them scientifically. My task here is to show how the developed principles can be applied to one of the youngest and most controversial sciences, namely aesthetics. Aesthetics, the science that concerns itself with art and artistic creations, is barely 100 years old. Fully conscious of the desire to inaugurate a new field of science, Alexander Gottlieb Baumgarten first appeared in 1750. This is the same time period that saw the efforts of Winkelmann and Lessing to arrive at a thorough judgment on the basic questions of art. Everything that had so far been attempted in this field cannot be deemed even the most elementary beginning to this science. Even the great Aristotle himself 
that spiritual giant who had such an authoritative influence on all branches of science, remained unproductive in the field of aesthetics. He excluded the visual arts from the sphere of his considerations, showing thereby that he did not at all possess a concept of art. And furthermore, he knows of no other principle than the imitation of nature, which again shows us that he never grasped the task of the human spirit when it comes to artistic creation. The fact that the science of beauty arose so late is not a coincidence. It was not possible in earlier times for the simple reason that the preconditions were absent. What are these preconditions? The need for art is as old as humanity, but this need could not arise until very late, after humanity had grasped its task. The Greek spirit, which by virtue of its favorable organization, derived satisfaction from the reality that immediately surrounded it, brought forth an epoch of art of the highest significance. But it did so in original naivete without the need to create through art a world that can offer us a satisfaction that cannot be found any other way. Everything the Greek sought he found in reality. Nature abundantly provided everything for which his heart longed, for which his spirit thirsted. His heart never longed for anything that could not be found in the surrounding world. The Greek did not grow beyond nature, and therefore all his needs were satisfied through it. He is indivisibly united in his whole being with nature, which creates in him and knows quite well what to create for him to satisfy his needs. Thus among these naive peoples art merely formed a continuation of life and of the drives within nature. It grew directly out of nature. Art satisfied the same needs as its mother, only to a higher degree. That is why Aristotle knew of no higher artistic principle than the imitation of nature. It was not necessary to reach beyond nature, because the source of all satisfaction was already present in nature. Mere imitation, which to us seems empty and meaningless, was fully sufficient. We have forgotten how to see in pure nature the highest for which our spirit longs. Therefore, mere realism, which offers us that pure, higher reality, could never satisfy us. Such a time had to come. It was a necessity for the attainment of humanity's progressive development toward ever higher levels of perfection. It was possible for the human being to maintain himself entirely within nature, as long as he was not conscious of it. The moment that he recognized himself in full clarity, that he perceived within himself a realm at least equal to that of the outer world, at that moment he had to free himself from the fetters of nature. Now he could no longer give himself over to her entirely and let her do with him what she pleased. Let her give rise to his needs and then satisfy them. Now he had to confront her. And in doing so he had, in fact, separated himself from her. He had created a new world within himself, and out of this world streamed his longing. From it came his desires. Whether these desires 
generated apart from Mother Nature, can be satisfied by her remains, of course a matter of chance. In any case, the human being is now separated from reality by a deep abyss, and he must first establish the harmony that existed earlier in original perfection. Thus there arose the conflict between the ideal and the real, between what is wanted and what is achieved. In short, all that leads the human soul into a veritable spiritual labyrinth. Nature then stands opposite us, devoid of soul, devoid of all that announces itself within us as divine. The immediate consequence is the turning away from all that is nature, the flight from direct reality. That is the very opposite of Greece. Just as Greece found everything in nature, so this worldview finds nothing at all in her. That is the light in which the Christian Middle Ages must appear to us. Just as Greece was unable to recognize the being of art because it could not grasp its transcendence over nature, its creation of a higher nature, in contrast to the immediate reality, so too was the Christian knowledge of the Middle Ages unable to produce a theory of art, for art, after all, could only work with the means offered by nature, and erudition could not grasp how to create, within the profane reality, works that could satisfy the spirits striving for the divine. Here, too, the helplessness of science did not prevent the development of art. Although the former did not know what to make of it, the most beautiful works of Christian art arose. Philosophy, which at that time trailed theology, knew as little about how to evaluate art in cultural development as did the great Greek idealist, the divine Plato. Plato, after all, simply declared the visual arts and drama to be harmful. His concept of the independent mission of art was so meager that he attributed to music some measure of justification only because it promoted bravery in war. It was not possible for the science of aesthetics to arise in a time when spirit and nature were so intimately connected. Nor was it possible in a time when unreconciled polarities confronted each other. Aesthetics could arise only in the time when the human being, freely and independently of the fetters of nature, saw with unclouded clarity that spirit which makes possible a reuniting with nature. It was for good reason that humanity raised itself above the standpoint of ancient Greece. For within the totality of coincidences that comprise the world, we feel ourselves placed into, we can never find the divine, the necessary. After all, we see nothing around us but realities that could just as easily be different. We see nothing but individual things, while our spirit strives for the archetypes. We see nothing but the finite, the transitory, while our spirit strives for the infinite, the permanent, the eternal. If then the human spirit, estranged from nature, is to return to nature, it must return to something other than that totality of coincidences. 
and Goethe calls this return a return to nature with the entire wealth of the developed spirit, with the cultural height of modern times. Goethe's view does not conform to the fundamental separation between nature and spirit. He wants to see in the world only a great whole, a unitary, developmental chain of beings within which the human being is a member, albeit the highest member. Quote, Nature, we are surrounded and embraced by her, powerless to separate ourselves from her and powerless to penetrate further into her. Unasked and unwarned, she takes us into the cycle of her dance and hurries on with us until we tire and fall from her arms. And in the book about Binkelmann, quote, when the healthy nature of the human being works as a whole, when the human being feels himself as a grand, beautiful, worthwhile, and valuable whole, when harmonious comfort grants him a pure, free delight, then the entire world, could it but perceive itself, would jubilate upon arriving at its goal and admire the summit of its own becoming and being. Herein lies the truly Goethean capacity to go far beyond the immediacy of nature without distancing himself at all from that which constitutes the being of nature. What he finds among many especially talented people is foreign to him, namely, quote, the peculiarity of feeling a kind of shyness in the face of true life, of retreating, of creating one's own world within oneself, and thus of achieving the most excellent accomplishments in relation to the inner life. Close quote. Goethe does not flee reality to create an abstract world of thought that has nothing in common with it. No, he penetrates more deeply into reality to discover its unchanging laws in its eternal transformations, in its becoming and movement. He confronts the particular in order to perceive the archetype in it. In this way, the archetypal plant, the archetypal animal, which are nothing other than the idea of the animal and the plant, arose in his spirit. These are not empty generalizations belonging to some gray theory. These are the essential foundations of organisms with a rich concrete content, vivid and full of life. Not vivid for the outer senses, certainly, but for that elevated capacity of observation which Goethe discusses in his article on quote, the intuitive power of judgment. Close quote. Ideas in the Goethean sense are just as objective as the colors and shapes of things, but they are perceptible only for those whose capacity for understanding is organized to that end, just as colors and forms are present for the sighted and not for the blind. If we approach what is objective without a receptive spirit, it will not reveal itself to us. Without the instinctive capacity to perceive ideas, they will remain a field that is closed off to us. It was Schiller who gazed more deeply than anyone else into the structure of Goethe's genius. On August 23, 1794, he enlightened Goethe about the underlying nature of Goethe's own spirit with the following words, quote, 
You gather the entirety of nature to receive illumination concerning the particular. You seek in the totality of its phenomena for the fundamental explanation of the individual element. You stride step by step from the simple organization to the more complex in order finally to construct genetically the most complex of all, the human being, from the materials of the entire edifice of nature. Because you create the human being according to nature, you seek to penetrate into his hidden workings. Herein lies a key for the understanding of Goethe. If we really want to rise up to the archetype of things, to the unchangeable, within the eternally changing, then we ought not to consider what is finished, for this no longer corresponds entirely to the idea it expresses. We must go back to the becoming. We must eavesdrop on nature in its creativity. This is the meaning of Goethe's words in his essay, quote, The Intuitive Power of Judgment, close quote, quote, If in the moral sphere we raise ourselves through belief in God, virtue, and immortality to a higher region, and thus approach the first primal being. So in the intellectual sphere it should also be the case that we may make ourselves worthy of spiritual participation in the creations of nature by observing its continual creativity. This remains true, even though at first I insisted unconsciously and out of an inner urge on the archetype and the typical. Thus the Goethean archetypes are not empty schemes, but rather the driving forces behind the phenomena. This is the, in quotes, higher nature, within nature, which Goethe wants to master. From this we see that a human being of higher cultural standing can in no instance come to a standstill before reality as it lies spread out before our senses. What binds the world together in its innermost core will be revealed to the human being only when the human spirit transcends reality, breaks the shell, and penetrates to the kernel. Never again can we find satisfaction in individual events, only in the laws of nature, never again in the single individual, only in the universal. In Goethe this fact arises in the most complete form possible. Where he, too, leaves off is the, with the fact that reality, the single individual element, does not offer satisfaction to the modern spirit. For it is not in it, but beyond it, that we find what we recognize as the highest, what we revere as divine, what we call in science an idea. Whereas, on the one hand, mere experience cannot arrive at the reconciliation of these opposites, because it contains the reality but not the idea, on the other hand, science cannot achieve this reconciliation because it includes the idea but no longer contains the reality. Between these two, the human being requires a new realm, a realm in which the individual element, not the whole, represents the idea, a realm in which the individual element manifests itself in such a way that the character of what is universal and necessary already lives within it. 
In reality, however, such a world does not exist. Such a world must first be achieved by human beings. And it is this world that is art. A necessary third realm next to that of the senses and that of reason. Understanding art as this third realm is the task that aesthetics must set for itself. The divine, which natural things lack, must be implanted in them by the human being himself, and herein lies the high task that arises for artists. They must, in a manner of speaking, bring God's realm onto the earth. In his book about Winkelmann, Goethe describes this religious task of art, as it may well be called, in the following glorious words, quote, In that the human being is placed upon the pinnacle of nature, he regards himself as yet another complete nature that must in turn bring forth another pinnacle. Therefore he heightens his powers by imbuing himself with all perfections and virtues, calling upon choice, order, harmony, and meaning to raise himself finally to the production of a work of art. This then compares splendidly with his other actions and works. Once it has been created, once it stands before the world in its ideal reality, it has a permanent effect. It brings forth the highest. For inasmuch as it develops spiritually from the totality of forces, it takes up in itself all that is glorious and worthy of devotion and love. By ensouling the human form, it uplifts the human being beyond himself completes the circle of his life and activity, and deifies him for the present, in which the past and the future are contained. Such were the feelings that gripped those who beheld the Olympian Jupiter, as we can conclude from the descriptions, tidings, and testimonies of the ancients. God had become human in order to raise the human up to God. They beheld the highest dignity and were enthused for the highest beauty. Thus the high significance of art for the cultural progress of humanity was recognized, and it is characteristic of the mighty ethos of the German people that it was the first to realize this, characteristic that for the past century all German philosophers have struggled to find the most suitable scientific form for the peculiar way in which spiritual and natural, ideal and real, have melted together in works of art. This, after all, is the task of aesthetics, to comprehend the essence of this interpenetration and to work through the individual forms as they present themselves in the various realms of art. The problem which we have first broached here, thereby precipitating all the central questions of aesthetics, led to the publication in 1790 of Kant's title Critique of Pure Reason. Its analysis immediately touched Goethe sympathetically. But despite all of the serious work that has been expended on this matter, we have to admit today that we have not achieved a completely satisfying solution to the task of aesthetics. The old master of our aesthetics, the keen thinker and critic Friedrich Theodor Fischer, was convinced to the end of his days that, quote, aesthetics is still in its beginnings, 
close quote. He thereby admitted that all strivings in this realm, including his own five volumes on aesthetics, denote paths that are more or less false. And indeed, that is the case. This can, if I may here express my own convictions, be traced back to the circumstance that Goethe's fruitful seeds in this realm remain unnoticed because he was considered unscientific. Had one noticed them, one would simply have developed the ideas that arose in Schiller when he considered Goethe's genius and that appeared in his work titled On the Aesthetic Education of Man. These letters, too, are not considered scientific enough by the systematizing aestheticians, and yet they are among the highest achievements ever attained by aesthetics. Schiller builds on Kant. Kant was the philosopher who determined the nature of beauty from many perspectives. He first examines the reason for the pleasure we feel in the presence of beautiful works of art. This particular feeling of pleasure differs from all others. Let us compare it to the feeling of pleasure we feel when concerned with a utilitarian object. This is quite a different kind of pleasure. It is closely connected with our desire for the existence of the object. The desire for something useful disappears when that useful object is no longer present. The pleasure we experience through beauty is different. This pleasure has nothing to do with ownership or the existence of the object. It does not adhere to the object, but only to the idea of the object. That is why Kant calls the pleasure we feel in the presence of beauty something entirely uninfluenced by reality, something, quote, disinterested in pleasure, close quote. But the point of view that would therefore exclude utility from beauty would be false. That occurs only outwardly. And this raises the second explanation for beauty. Quote, it is formed from within, according to a purpose, but does not serve an outer purpose. Close quote. When we perceive some other thing in nature or some other product of human technology, then our intellect comes and demands usefulness and purpose. Nor will our intellect be satisfied before the question, quote, what for, close quote, is answered. In the beautiful, the, in quotes, what for, lies in the thing itself, and the intellect need not go beyond it. From here, Schiller continues. He does so by weaving the idea of freedom into the train of thought in such a way that the highest honor is paid to human nature. To begin with, Schiller sets up the polarity of two ceaselessly assertive human drives. The first is the so-called sense-drive, German Stoff-Trieb, or the desire to keep our senses open to the in-pouring outer world. A wealth of content enters us without our being able to influence its nature. In this case, everything occurs with unconditional necessity. Whatever we perceive is determined from without. We are unfree, subjugated, and must simply obey the command of natural necessity. The second is the form drive, German formtrieb. This is nothing other than reason. 
which brings order and lawfulness into the confusing chaos of sense perceptions. Through its work, systematization joins experience. But here too Schiller finds that we are not free, for in this work reason is subjugated by the immutable laws of logic. Nature's necessity rules us in the former case, reason's necessity in the latter. Freedom seeks sanctuary from both. Schiller assigns freedom to the realm of art by invoking the analogy between art and the play of a child. What characterizes the essence of play? Things are taken from reality only to have their relationships altered arbitrarily. In this transformation of reality, the law of logical necessity is not decisive, as it is when, for example, we build a machine and must subject ourselves to the laws of reason. But instead it is only a subjective need that is served. The one who plays arranges things according to what pleases him. He disregards all manner of constraint. He pays no attention to natural necessity, for he overcomes its constraints by using the materials he is given completely according to whim. Nor does he depend on the need for reason, for whatever order he imposes on things is his own invention. In this way, the one who plays impresses on reality the stamp of his own subjectivity, in turn endowing it with objective validity. The separated activity of the two drives has ended. They have become one, and thus have become free. Nature has become spirit, spirit has become nature. Thus Schiller, the poet of freedom, sees in art a higher form of human play, and exclaims enthusiastically, quote, The human being is entirely human only while playing, and he plays only when he is human in the full sense of the word. Close quote. Schiller calls the drive underlying art the play drive, German Spieltrieb. It produces in artists' works that, in their sensory existence, already satisfy our reason, and whose intellectual content is simultaneously present as sensory existence. And the being of man works at this level in such a way that his physical nature acts spiritually, and his spiritual nature acts physically. Nature is raised to the spirit, spirit sinks to nature. The former is thus ennobled, while the latter is moved from its invisible heights into the visible world. Certainly the works that thus arise are not entirely true to nature, for in reality spirit and nature never coincide. Therefore, if we compare the works of art with those of nature, they seem to be mere semblance. But they have to be semblance because otherwise they would not be true works of art. With his concept of semblance in this connection, Schiller is unique amongst aestheticians, unsurpassed and unrivaled. This is where further work should have been carried out, where the hitherto one-sided solution to the problem of beauty, which relies heavily on Goethe's observations of art, should have been expanded. Instead, Schelling appears on the scene with a completely erroneous, fundamental view and instigates an error from which German aesthetics never again recovered. Schelling, like all of modern philosophy, 
finds the highest task of human striving to be the grasping of the eternal archetypes of things. The spirit strides past the real world and raises itself to the heights where the divine is enthroned. There all truth and beauty are revealed. Only the eternal is true and also beautiful. Therefore, according to Schelling, real beauty can only be seen by one who has raised himself to the highest truth, for truth and beauty are one and the same. All sense-perceptible beauty is, after all, merely a weak reflection of the infinite beauty we can never perceive with our senses. We see where this leads. The work of art is not beautiful for its own sake, by being what it is, but because it depicts the idea of beauty. The consequence of this point of view is that the content of art is considered the same as that of science, since both of them are based on eternal truth, which is at the same time beauty. For Schelling, art is merely science that has become objective. What matters is that from which our pleasure is derived, namely the expressed idea. The sensory picture is merely the form in which the supra-sensory content is expressed. In this regard, all aestheticians follow Schelling's idealistic direction. I really cannot agree with Edward von Hartmann, the most recent historian and systematizer of aesthetics, that Hegel essentially surpassed Schelling. I mean as regards this issue, for there are many other areas where Hegel towers above him. Indeed, Hegel says, quote, Beauty is the sense-perceptible semblance of the idea. Close quote. Thus, he too admits that what matters for him in art is what he sees in the expressed idea. This becomes even clearer in the following words, quote, The hard shell of nature and the ordinary world make it more difficult for the spirit to penetrate through them to the idea than works of art do. Close quote. Surely, this very clearly says that the goal of art is the same as that of science, namely to penetrate through to the idea. Art merely seeks to make manifest what science brings to expression directly in thought form. Friedrich Theodor Fischer calls beauty, quote, the appearance of the idea, close quote, and thereby equates the content of art with truth. One can object however one wishes, the fact remains that whoever has seen the essence of beauty in the expressed idea can never again separate beauty from truth. Then it is no longer apparent that art has a task independent of science. By means of thinking and without the obstructive haze of the senses, we then experience in a pure unclouded form what art offers us. Only by means of sophistry can we ignore, from the perspective of this aesthetic theory, the actually compromising conclusion that allegory in the visual arts and didactic poetry in the poetic arts are the highest forms of art. This aesthetic theory cannot comprehend the independent significance of art, and thus it has proven itself to be unproductive. Yet we should not go too far, and in consequence abandon all striving for an aesthetic theory free of contradiction. And those who want to have all of aesthetics subsumed by art history do indeed go too far in that direction. 
This science, if it does not rely on authentic principles, can then be nothing but a gathering place for collected notes about the artists and their works, which will include more or less intelligent remarks. These, however, will be entirely worthless, as they will originate in a random subjective reasoning. On the other hand, by attributing something like a physiology of taste to aesthetics, one has corporealized it. By examining the simplest, most elementary cases in which we experience pleasure and then rising up to ever more complicated cases, one wants to oppose the, quote, aesthetic from above, close quote, with an, quote, aesthetic from below, close quote. This is the path that Fechner pioneered in his introduction to aesthetics. It is truly beyond comprehension that a work such as this could find adherence among a folk that produced someone like Kant. Aesthetics is to originate in a feeling of pleasure, as if every feeling of pleasure were already aesthetic, and as if the aesthetic nature of an experience of pleasure could be distinguished by anything but the object that caused it. All we know is that pleasure is an aesthetic experience when we recognize the object as beautiful, for psychologically, pleasure does not distinguish itself aesthetically from anything else. It is always a matter of recognizing the object. By what means does an object become beautiful? That is the basic question of all aesthetics. By starting from Goethe, we will come closer to the answer than did the, quote, aestheticians from below. Merck once characterized Goethe's work with the following words, quote, Your striving, your undeviating goal, is to give poetic form to reality. Others seek to make real the so-called poetic or imaginative, which results in nothing but nonsense. This more or less echoes Goethe's words in the second part of Faust. Quote, Consider what? but even more consider how. This speaks clearly to what is important in art, not the incarnating of the supersensory, but a transformation of the sensory real. Reality ought not to descend to a mere means of expression. No, it ought to remain fully independent, only it must acquire a new form, a form through which it satisfies us. If we lift any particular detail out of its environment and look at it in its detached position, much will become incomprehensible for us. We cannot harmonize it with the concept, the idea, which we must by necessity regard as its foundation. Its creation in reality is not merely the consequence of its own lawfulness, but the adjoining reality directly co-determines it. Only if the thing were able to develop independently and freely, uninfluenced by other things, would it live according to its own idea. This idea at the foundation of the thing, which is, in reality, hindered in its free development, must be taken up by the artist and developed. He must find the point in the object out of which the thing can develop its most perfect form a form that it could not develop alone in nature. Indeed, nature holds back from fulfilling its full intention in every individual thing. Next to this plant, 
it creates a second, a third, and so forth. None of them bring the complete idea to life concretely. In one plant, this aspect emerges, in another, a different aspect, as circumstances permit. But the artist must return to what appears to him as nature's tendency. That is what Goethe means when he describes his creativity in the words, quote, I did not rest until I found the incisive point from which much can be derived. Close quote. For the artist, the entire outer aspect of his work must bring to expression the entire inner aspect. In nature, the outer falls short of the inner, and it is up to the investigative human spirit to recognize it. Thus the laws followed by the artist are none other than the eternal laws of nature, but pure and uninfluenced by any limitations. Therefore, what underlies artistic creations is not what is, but what could be, not the real, but the possible. The artist creates according to the same principles as nature, but he treats what is particular according to these principles. Whereas, to put it in Goethean terms, nature does not make anything of the particular. Quote, it, nature, is always building, always destroying. Close quote. Because it does not want to reach perfection through the particular, but through the whole. The content of a work of art is some sort of sensory reality. This is the what. Through the form that he gives to the what, the artist strives to go beyond nature and its tendencies, to fulfill nature's potential, with its laws and means, to a higher degree than nature itself. The object that the artist places before us is more complete than it would be in nature, but it contains no perfection other than what it contains inherently on its own. Beauty consists of the object's reaching beyond itself, albeit on the basis of what is hidden within it. Beauty is therefore not unnatural, and Goethe is justified in saying, quote, Beauty is a manifestation of the secret laws of nature, which, were they not thus revealed, would remain hidden forever. Close quote. Or expressed differently, quote, When nature begins to disclose her revealed secret, we experience an irresistible yearning for its worthiest interpreter, art. Close quote. Just as one can say that beauty is unreal, untrue, mere semblance, because what it represents can be found nowhere in nature to such perfection, one can also say beauty is truer than nature, for it represents what nature wants to but cannot be. Goethe says the following about this question of reality in art. Quote, the poet, close quote, we can easily expand Goethe's words to include all of art, quote, is dependent on representation. Representation reaches its highest aspect when it competes with reality, that is, when its depictions are brought to life through the spirit, so that they have meaning for everyone, close quote. Goethe finds that, quote, there is nothing beautiful in nature that has not been motivated as true 
according to natural law. Close quote. And we find the other side of semblance, the surpassing of the being through itself, expressed as Goethe's view in Title Maximus and Reflections. Quote, the law of vegetable growth appears in its highest form in the blossom, and the rose would simply be the pinnacle of this appearance. The fruit can never be beautiful, for there the law of vegetable growth recedes back into itself, into mere law. Here we have it in full clarity. Beauty occurs where the idea develops and unfolds, where we immediately perceive the law in the outer phenomenon. On the other hand, where the outer phenomenon appears formless and lumpy, because it does not reveal anything of the law underlying the growth of the plant, that is where nature's capacity for beauty reaches its limit. Therefore the same proverb continues, quote, The law that manifests itself in the phenomenon, with the greatest freedom, according to its own conditions, brings forth objective beauty, which must indeed find subjects worthy of grasping it. Close quote. In his Conversations with Eckermann, Goethe expresses his view most decisively in the following utterance. Quote, Certainly, the artist must copy nature's details truly and devotedly, only in the higher regions of artistic activity, where a painting actually becomes a painting, does he have free reign and may here even permit himself the use of fictions. Goethe thus designates the highest task of art, quote, to give through semblance the illusion of a higher reality. But it would be erroneous to continue making semblance into reality to such an extent that in the end only common reality remained. Let us now ask ourselves why artistic objects elicit pleasure. Above all, we have to be clear that pleasure, which is satisfied by beautiful objects, is not wanting when compared with the purely intellectual pleasure we experience through the purely spiritual. Whenever the task of art is sought for in the satisfaction of lower pleasures or in mere amusement, it always signifies a decided decadence of art. Therefore, the reason for pleasure in the objects of art will be no different from the joyful elevation we feel in the world of ideas overall, which lifts the entire human being out of and above himself. What then gives us such satisfaction in the world of ideas? Nothing other than the inner heavenly tranquility and completeness that it bears within itself. No contradiction, no dissonance stirs in the thought world that arises in our own inner being, because the world is infinite. Everything that makes this picture complete is inherent in it. This innate completeness of the world of thought is the reason for our being uplifted when in its presence. If beauty is to offer us a similar elevation, then it has to be fashioned according to the pattern of the idea. And this is something quite different from what the German idealizing aestheticians want. Instead of being the, quote, idea in the form of the sensory appearance, Close quote. It is quite the contrary, the quote, sensory appearance in the form of the idea. 
close quote. The content of beauty, which always consists of the same fundamental substance, is always something real, something absolutely real, and the form of its appearance is what is ideal. We see that the truth is just the opposite of what the German aesthetic says it is. For this aesthetic simply turned things upside down. Beauty is not the divine in a sensory real garment. No, it is the sensory real in a divine garment. The artist does not bring the divine to earth by letting it flow into the world, but by raising the world up to the sphere of the divine. Beauty is semblance because it conjures up before our senses a reality that as such represents an ideal world. Consider what, but even more, consider how. For in the how lies what is important. The what remains in the sense world, but the how of the occurrence becomes something ideal. Wherever this ideal manifestation in the sense world best appears, there too will the dignity of art appear the most. About this, Goethe says, quote, The dignity of art appears perhaps most eminently in music, because it has no substance that must be accounted for. It is entirely form and content, and it exalts and ennobles everything it expresses. Close quote. But the aesthetic theory, based on the definition, quote, beauty is a sensory reality that appears as though it were an idea, close quote, does not yet exist. Such an aesthetic theory must still be created. It can absolutely be designated as the, quote, aesthetic theory of Goethe's worldview, close quote. And that is the aesthetic theory of the future. Even Edward von Hartmann, one of the most recent revisers of this aesthetic, who created a truly exceptional work in his title, Philosophy of the Beautiful, pays homage to the old error that the content of beauty is the idea. He correctly says that the fundamental concept from which any science of beauty must stem is the concept of the aesthetic semblance. True. But is the semblance of the ideal world as such ever to be considered as semblance? The idea, after all, is the highest truth. Whenever it appears, it appears as the highest truth and not as semblance. But it is truly a semblance when what is natural, individual, appears in the clothing of the eternal and imperishable, fitted with the character of the idea, for reality falls short of this. Taken in this sense, the artist appears to us as the continuator of the world spirit. The former continues with creation there where the latter relinquishes it. The artist appears to us as intimately related to the world spirit, and art appears as the continuation of natural processes. In that way, the artist raises himself up above the common and real aspects of life and raises us up to his level when we deepen our relationship to his work. He does not create for the finite world, but grows beyond it. In his poem, titled The Artist's Apotheosis, Goethe 
allows his point of view to be uttered by the muse, who addresses these words to the artist. Quote, so doth the hero mightily inspire his equals through the chain of centuries. The heights a noble spirit can attain may not be mastered in life's narrow span. Hence also after death his soul continues, not less creative now than when he lived. The noble deed, the beautiful idea, strives deathless on as mortally it strove. So thou, the poet, too, livest through unmeasured time in fields of immortality sublime. In this poem, Goethe's thoughts on what I may call the cosmic mission of the artist are brought aptly to expression. Who else besides Goethe ever grasped art so profoundly? Who else ever knew to honor art with such dignity? Quote, the high works of art, brought forth by humans according to true and natural laws, are also the highest works of nature. Everything arbitrary and imagined disintegrates. There is necessity. There is God. So saying, he surely expresses sufficiently the utter depth of his views. An aesthetic theory, in accordance with his spirit, can surely not be a bad thing. And this will no doubt also be the case for many other fields of our modern sciences. When Walter von Goethe, the poet's last heir, died on April 15, 1885, and the treasures of the Goethe house became accessible to the nation, there were probably many who shrugged at the zeal with which the scholars scrutinized the tiniest detail of Goethe's estate, handling it as a relic which, as far as research was concerned, was not to be disdained. But Goethe's genius is inexhaustible and cannot be taken in with a single glance. We can only come closer to it by approaching it from various perspectives. Even details that seem worthless, when taken individually, gain in meaning when we consider them in relation to the comprehensive worldview of the poet. His being, his tendencies from which everything in him springs, and which denote a high point for humanity, will appear before our souls only if we survey the full riches of his utterances. Only when this tendency becomes the common property of all those who strive spiritually, when it becomes a general belief that we must not only understand Goethe's worldview, but that we must also live in it as it lives in us, only then will Goethe have fulfilled his mission. This worldview must become a sign for all members of the German people, and far beyond, in which they encounter and recognize each other in a common striving. That's the end of the lecture. I'm going to add these uh, comments from page 4F. Aesthetics as an independent science is meant here. Of course, one can find expositions by leading thinkers of earlier times about the arts, but an historian of aesthetics could discuss all of this only in a manner appropriate to the discussion of the philosophical striving of humanity before the actual beginning of philosophy, which starts in Greece with Thales. Page 7 and 8 It might be noticed that in these descriptions the following is said, thinking, in the Middle Ages finds nothing at all in nature. 
In opposition, one could mention the great thinkers and mystics of the Middle Ages. But such an objection rests on a complete misunderstanding. What is said here is not that thinking in the Middle Ages would not have been able to construct concepts about the meaning of perception and so forth, but only that at that time the human spirit was turned toward the spirit as such, in its archetypal form, and felt no inclination to come to terms with any detailed facts of nature. Page 15 Schelling's, quote, mistaken fundamental perspective, close quote, does not refer to a raising of the spirit, quote, to the heights where the divine rules, close quote, but rather to the way Schelling applies this to the observation of art. This must be underscored. So that what is said here in opposition to Schelling does not get confused with the many contemporary critics opposing Schelling and philosophical idealism in general. One can raise Schelling to a very high stature, as the author of this treatise does, and nevertheless have many objections to individual details in his achievements. Pages 17FF The sensory reality of art is transfigured when it appears as if it were spirit. In this respect, creating art is not the imitation of something already in existence, but springing from the human soul a continuation of the world process. Mere imitation of nature creates just as little that is new as does pictorializing the already present spirit. A strong artist is not one who impresses the viewer with a faithful rendering of reality, but one who compels the viewer to accompany him when his creativity carries on the world process. And that's the complete end of that lecture.